We end up using these awkward portmanteaus like non-human or other than human or non-human beings, non-human persons. But all of those are about a lack, right? If you put non in front of human, you're already implying that there's something missing, which is not actually the way that I understand a whale to be. It's not a not person. It's a different kind of person. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Lindsay Stern. And I'm Viveka Morris. Were you to pass under a street lamp at night in New England in the 19th century, chances are good that you would find your path illuminated by a substance that originated in the Arctic Sea. Whale oil, the waxy matter found in the skulls and blubber of these aquatic giants, lit the West during the Industrial Revolution. Producing a bright, odorless flame, it lit houses, roads, and factories, guided ships toward land, and lubricated the water wheels and looms that helped drive the Industrial Revolution. It was the hunger for this substance, writes our guest, historian Bathsheba DeMuth, that nearly wiped these leviathans off the planet and brought two warring world powers into contact with another way of relating to nature. Commercial whaling ships, writes DeMuth, sailed into a place where whales were not for sale, but were understood as souls by the Inupiat, Yupik, and Chukchi peoples, who hunted them with expectations of a world constantly reincarnating and never easy to survive in. And there were the whales themselves, she writes, animals who, in the first years of this revolution, learned the danger of American ships and chose, with their behavior, to frustrate the desires of commerce. In Floating Coast, DeMuth explores how capitalism, communism, and ecology have clashed for over 150 years in the remote region of Beringia, the Arctic lands and waters stretching between Russia and Canada. Long before Americans and Europeans arrived to recruit its creatures into their economic programs, indigenous peoples living in these territories have practiced drastically different modes of association with the elements colonists regarded as natural resources. In reconstructing the confrontation between these practices and the rituals of early industrialization, DeMuth remakes the possibilities of her genre. What is the nature of history, she asks, when nature is part of what makes history? Bathsheba DeMuth is an environmental historian at Brown University, specializing in the Russian and North American Arctic. Her interest in northern environments and cultures began at the age of 18 when she moved to the Yukon, where she mushed huskies, hunted caribou, fished for salmon, tracked bears, and otherwise learned to survive in the taiga and tundra. Her explorations of how the histories of people, ideas, places, and non-human species intersect have appeared in The New Yorker, Eon, The Atlantic, and in her acclaimed first book, Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait. It was hailed as the best book of 2019 by Nature. Bathsheba DeMuth, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. For someone who has never been to Beringia, how would you describe the landscape and what were your first encounters there? That's a great question. I think the first thing to think about, or when I think about the landscape in Beringia, is that it's actually incredibly varied. I think for folks who haven't spent a lot of time in the Arctic, there's a sense that when you get that far north, it's very monotonous. It's a lot of just sort of frozen wasteland. Uh, But in fact, it's a really dynamic landscape that changes from mile to mile. Some of it's mountainous, some of it's kind of flat, open, boggy terrain, um, some of it's very dramatic coastlines, some of it's more sort of settled beaches. 
So when I think about it, it's very specific to given locations because it's so variable and indeed changeable. Some of these are places that are um, changing in almost real time because of the ways that tides work. Um, Arctic rivers move pretty radically over time. They they sort of change their riverbeds pretty quickly. In If you're thinking about rivers, they change them quickly. Um, so... That's part of what I think about when I think about Beringia is that it's it's not a frozen wasteland. Um, and I really learned to think about it that way when I moved up there um, on something of a wild hare when I was 18 and spent several years training sled dogs up north. And it was it was an education in many things, but one of them was really in how alive and dynamic this landscape is and how that dynamism is really part of shaping everyday life. How did you come to focus on whales in particular? So I did not start writing this project thinking I was going to write about whales at all. It was a it was a happy accident. Um, and it was an accident that really emerged out of the archives and the sources that I was using to try to understand the kind of history of human environment relationships in this part of the world over the last 200 years or so. And when I first started writing this project, um, I was planning on concentrating on the Russian side of the Bering Strait. I was trained as a Russian historian. And then I realized that the nation-state boundaries didn't really make any sense there. Um, They're very, very recent. They really only were operational after 1948. And even to this day, when you're up in Beringia, there's really a sense that this is a place that has far more to connect it than to divide it. So I sort of dispensed with the nation-state particularity and realized that I needed to talk about both what is now the United States and what is now the Russian Federation. And then I also realized that the kind of standard political uh, time points that I had imagined setting the the kind of tempo for this story that I wanted to write, particularly the Russian Revolution, was important, but it didn't actually make sense as a starting point because in – thinking about the ways in which um, different European ideas about how we should interact with nature have come into contact with Beringian nature and with uh, Yupik Chukchi and Inupiaq people in Beringia, the Russian Revolution comes after a series of other revolutions. And the first one, and this came up in the oral histories, it came up in the archival documents that I found, was really with commercial whaling in the 19th century. And I figured this out when I was sitting in an archive in Vladivostok, which is very, very far from the whaling archives that are actually here in New England. And so it was a, with a bit of panic that I realized that I needed to draw this story back long before the Russian Revolution uh, and that it wasn't even a Russian story really at all because the Russian Empire was not a whaling country. And it was one that was going to kind of start at the confluence of indigenous whaling and this kind of commercial whaling that emerges out of New England. In the book, you describe how the first New England whalers arrived in this region in um, the late 1840s. Prior to their arrival, what would the interaction have looked like between the bowhead and other whales in the region that you focus on? That's a great question. So whales and bowhead whales and gray whales in particular have been absolutely critical to human life in the Bering Strait for millennia, uh, for at least 2,000 years. And in part, this is because this is a a region of the world where the the ways in which we, if you're living in a temperate place like we are here in New Haven, get our sort of day-to-day energy doesn't really work. So specifically agriculture, it's not really a going concern um, if you're living in the subarctic and arctic uh, Bering Strait. There's just not enough daylight. The soils aren't right. So people made livings 
you know, from other kinds of um, materials that they found in the world. And whales have an enormous concentration of energy in their bodies. Bowhead whales are over 40% fat by volume, so they're kind of a floating stick of butter. And people learned how to hunt them uh, from open boats millennia ago. And this has become kind of a critical anchoring point for villages all along the Bering Strait, both on the Russian and the U.S. side. And as some illustration of how kind of critical and also how rich these animals were, um, people along the Bering Strait could live in settled villages. So not following migratory animals, not changing their own place in space in order to find food, but actually just had enough food coming to them in the form of, of whales. So absolutely kind of critical to material survival um, if you just kind of boil it down to the, the, the calories that come in a whale. But beyond that, whales were understood and remain a really critical piece of the ways in which people understood their relationship with the world at large. So beyond being a material resource, whales were a constitutive part of the sort of social fabric of human life um, and in life more generally in the Bering Strait. And that that kind of relationship, the understanding of whales as being sentient beings that were able to make moral judgments of people, to understand the people uh, that hunted them as being um, dependent on whales' behavior in order to continue existing, uh, led to kind of a, a relationship between whales and people in which maybe 100 bowhead whales a year uh, were killed for food. Um, and then that's out of a population of about you know, 20,000, between 20 and 30,000 animals. So for the majority of human and whale coexistence in the Arctic, that's really been the, the kind of main experience is that a few whales are hunted um, per year um, from a, a relatively robust population. And then what happened in 1848 and 1849? So in 1848, a ship captain named Thomas Royce, who uh, was shipping out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, makes his way up to the Bering Strait, um, and at this point, if you think about the map of the world, this is a pretty desperate voyage for a New England whaler. He's a long, long way from home um, on voyages that by that point were lasting 18 months or more. And the reason that Roy's pushes as far as the Bering Strait is because the whale species that were easy to hunt from tall ships, so right whales and sperm whales and gray whales, were growing rare enough um, all through the Atlantic and then also through the Pacific um, that he was willing to try sailing up into what were, to commercial whalers, completely unknown waters. And he arrives and discovers that this was a really good choice uh, because the seas around the Bering Strait um, in June when he sails in are just alive with bowhead whales. And they're very easy to hunt. So, you know, he very quickly fills up the hold of his ship with bowhead whale oil to, to bring back to New Bedford um, and then also brings news of this kind of bonanza of of new whaling grounds back to Hawaii, which at that time was a major stopover point for the Yankee whaling fleet in the Pacific. Um, and so by 1849, uh, you know, a hundredth ships or more head north because they've heard rumors of this or and also read it in the newspapers um, that there's this new whaling ground. In the course of your research, you describe a lot of the the journals and um, various sources that you found from these whalers, which was one of one of many very fascinating. Uh, sources that you used for the book. And you see in these journals that the whalers who are interacting with the whales, like the indigenous people, saw, that, saw the whales as having 
agency and being able to learn and uh, see them protecting their young and uh, working very hard to try to avoid being killed in this way, um, yet there's no means for them to have that emotional response matter in the course of this capitalist system. Um, and I'm curious, uh, um, what, how did the whales then respond to this, this change, which is something you write about very beautifully in, in a fascinating way in Floating Coast? So one of the things that I was hoping to be able to talk about as I wrote this book were instances in which you could really see um, the environment or nature or an animal species or something something else in the Arctic uh, really exerting agency over human history. Um, and I had this as sort of like a broad thing that I was hoping would emerge out of the research. Um, but I realized it was going to be pretty hard to pin down. And then it turns out that in the case of whales, it wasn't hard to pin down at all. It was just leaping out of the sources all the time. And in particular, um, the case of this Yankee whaling fleet that arrives in the Bering Strait in force in 1849 and has several just bonanza seasons. They're able to kill whales you know, almost every day. They see them in large numbers. The whales are not afraid of the whalers at all. The logs kind of repeatedly discuss the ways in which the whales would just sort of swim up to ships. And so it's an incredibly easy place to hunt. But within a couple of years of the the Yankee fleet arriving, this behavior changes completely. And instead of swimming up to the ships, uh, bowhead whales start actively avoiding them and in particular start swimming into the edge of the pack ice which if you're imagining yourself in a wooden tall ship of the Moby Dick variety, if you're up you know, around the Bering Strait, you do not want to have a, a, an altercation <laughs> with the sea ice, right? Um, they will, it will founder your ship potentially. So the ship's captains would try to keep a distance, and the bowhead whales seem to have learned this pretty quickly and would, would sort of flee into the sea ice when they saw ships approaching. And to such an extent that in the middle of the 1850s, the Yankee ships stop coming to the Bering Strait at all. They conclude that it's actually too dangerous and it's too hard uh, to hunt these bowhead whales because they have become, as the whalers put it, so canny or so shy or so wild. Those are the words that they tend to use the most. Um, And it's not really until the fleet is absolutely desperate to fill up their holds with oil that they attempt going back up. Um, and actually end up losing a lot of ships in the sea ice in the process. I want to return to this idea of of how the whales are actually approaching the harpoon ships steered by the indigenous people. How did why did they do that? And according to the indigenous people, so the the Yupik understanding um, and the Nupik understanding of bowhead whale behavior, and and this is something that appears in the oral history records, and it appears in ethnographic records, and it appears in present practice. Um, so it's a really robust archive of um, understanding whale behavior this way, is that bowhead whales um, are animals with um, extraordinary moral sentiment um, and observational capacity who spend much of their life at sea distant from people but observing what human beings are doing on land. And so they will notice if a particular hunter is, for example, not generous with the people in his community. They will notice if he is mean to the people in his family or if um, the wife of the hunter who has a very sort of critical role in calling in the whales is not respectful in these actions. If people are not keeping their whale boats clean, 
um, if they're not keeping their community tidy. There's a sort of whole set of rules about the ways in which people should relate to each other and relate to the land that they're on and relate to other animals that whales are observing when they spend time away from the community. And this means that if when the whales are migrating past, they come near a hunter who has not behaved in an appropriate way, um, is somehow out of sync with his community, and I mean community in a very capacious sense, not just with people, um, then the whales will keep a distance from those hunters. And there's a, a particular kind of way in which hunters describe this happening when they go out in whale boats where They'll see a bowhead from shore. They'll get in the whale boats. They'll go out and approach. Um, and the bowheads will often, you know, keep at a distance, just sort of out of harpoon range, and usually on the left side of the boat. And the harpooner usually sits on the right side of the boat and will just observe the whalers for a while. Um, and then will either dive and disappear or will dive and come up on the right-hand side of the boat where they're close enough to the harpooner to be struck. And the Yupik and Inupiaq understanding of this is that the whales are making a choice in that moment um, that they will sacrifice themselves for the good of this human community um, in order that people can eat, um, in order that people kind of will maintain this relationship with the ocean and with the whale species through this act of death. Um, so it's not a moment of human supremacy um, or human kind of overcoming the whale's natural abilities. It's a moment of the whale deciding that these people are worthy so it's deeply sunk into this um, kind of moral worldview in which people are only one kind of being that makes the rules about what good action is. That's fascinating, too, because then the whales play such a stabilizing force on the society and the culture. And you describe in the book, likewise, what a stabilizing force they're playing um, on the environment in all sorts of ways as, as ecological forces in their own right. And that often it seems in history uh, tellings that humans are the ones shaping the environment and are the, the main agents in that regard. And you make clear in this book too that, you know, even interactions with people aside, the whales are playing an absolutely extraordinary role um, in as an ecological force. Could you explain how they do that? Yeah, so whales do many things that are really critical to ecosystem function, uh, one of which is just in the, the kind of mechanical process of rising to the surface to breathe and then diving and swimming, they move water through the water column. Um, and in ocean ecosystems, the water that's closer to the bottom of the ocean floor tends to have more nutrients in it. It's heavier, so it, that's where the you know iron and phosphorus um, and those kinds of elements are collecting. And then as whales are diving and surfacing, they're moving that toward the surface. And that's really important because photosynthetic life needs those nutrients to build cells. So if you bring it up, um, algae and diatoms and other things that are photosynthesizing are able to get a hold of those nutrients and turn it into more life. Um, so it's it's really critical. It's a sort of they're um, able to fertilize. Um, and then they're also literally fertilizing because they're pooing in the water column all the time. And these are large animals. So you can imagine what that does. Mm -hmm. There's a, a term, the kind of ecological term for this is being a whale pump, that they're actually kind of pumping water through the water column. But another thing is that whales can do is that because they are really large, and bowhead whales in particular are um, so fatty, they're long-lived, is that in seasons when the Arctic Ocean is somewhat less productive, um, they're able to just eat less, and then they absolutely gorge in seasons when it's uh, very abundant. Um, and this means that you know, because they are major consumers in an ocean ecosystem, because they can modulate this way, it means that the energy available for other species remains more consistent. 
Um, and so this has kind of an evening out effect that they will draw down their consumption in lean years, meaning that there are still nutrients available for other species. And that that, you know, one of the hypotheses about what whales do in an ecosystem is that they actually provide kind of a tempering to the fact that these systems are often pretty stochastic in terms of good years and bad years. What differences did you encounter in your research around the communist system and the capitalist system as crystallized by whaling and the practices of of killing the whales? That's a really interesting question and one where I expected to find many more differences than I did in some ways. And the book is kind of bookended by these stories of industrial whaling, starting with the capitalist whaling in the 19th century and then talking about Soviet whaling in the 20th century. And one of the things I found interesting was in the case of the Soviet whaling, the Soviet Union starts whaling in the 1930s in the Bering Strait, and they do so very much aware um, and actually having inherited a great deal of knowledge about what capitalist over-exploitation of whales had done. They understood that it had caused widespread famine on the Russian coast because indigenous peoples no longer had enough whales to hunt. They understood that it was detrimental to the whales. And they really sort of start their whaling program thinking that they can do it better. And initially start off with some real kind of desire to keep whaling within something like a sustainable ecological yield limit. That's not the terms they're using, but it's roughly that idea that we're going to do this in accordance to kind of what the ocean can give us. And they're doing this very much in service of a different idea than motivates capitalist whaling also, which is instead of having whales become commodities that make somebody rich through selling them, they are supposed to enrich society at large. And it's really kind of using whales just like you would a collective farm that was producing wheat or a collective farm that was making any other good in the Soviet Union, that it's there in order to make people more free, right, to liberate them from the kind of terrible capitalist labor that actually did happen on those whaling ships in the 19th century that was so alienated and, uh, you know, so degrading in some sense. So, you know, the Soviet Union starts with this sense that they need to be more kind of cognizant of whale biology, and they also need to be more cognizant of the labor conditions through which whales are killed and not reproduce this capitalist system. So this all looks great at the beginning. And then it it unfortunately takes this kind of terrible course into really radical exploitation and over-exploitation, um, particularly after the Second World War. And in part, this is I think a consequence of the conditions of the Second World War in the Soviet Union, which were so materially dire. Um, It was a country that uh, fought that war with really every last person and every last good and every last sort of capacity that the country could muster. It was a truly an existential operation. There were 30 million casualties. And it was something that really decimated the agricultural and industrial sector in the country to the degree that there was real concern about hunger within the Soviet Union during and and immediately after the war. And out of this, um, the captain of the whaling fleet in the the Russian Pacific actually writes to Stalin and says, look, you know, one of the ways that we can deal with this crisis in this country is we can whale more. You know, there's this huge supply of fat in particular that's just off our coastal waters out here in the Pacific. And if we got a fleet to go to Antarctica, we could have even more. Um, And so that was coming from a real place of human extremity and need um, and kind of prompts the upswing in the Soviet whaling program um, into the 1950s. 
But then even after that kind of direct material crisis abates, the Soviet Union just keeps whaling. Um, They whale way outside the International Whaling Commission limits, even though they're a member of the IWC. And, you know, my sense is that by the 1960s and the early 1970s, when the Soviets are still whaling um, at this massive industrial level, they're doing so because it fulfills certain kind of ideological goals within the country. Um, it, it fulfills this sense that the Soviet Union is still kind of expanding its capacity to produce. And it's in this case doing so with whale bodies. Um, and it's happening at a time when the Soviet's production is not as consistent on land um, in many ways. And there are other kinds of issues that are starting to show up like environmental degradation. Um, but if you're whaling internationally and you can always fill the plan year after year and you can overfill the plan so it looks like you're you're not just a good communist, you're an excellent communist <laughs> and you're winning, you know, awards for your labor at sea and also all the negative things that are happening to the environment because of that are not happening onshore. They're being offshored, literally. They're in the ocean. I think it, it you know, it's kind of those confluence of events that sort of push the Soviet whaling program to actually look really very similar to the American program that it was supposed to supersede and be better than in the 19th century. You've called that in uh, writing the logic of the slaughterhouse, which I thought was a a brilliant connection to make with regards to how this death and how all life being dependent on death in this way too, but this being a very violent way of consuming is concealed in this, um, in both, both the communist set up and the capitalist American approach to whaling. And I'm wondering, what is lost? What do you see as being lost by that approach and that logic? That's a really great question. And it's one that, I, I again, I think really unites some of the environmental issues on both the socialist Soviet side and the American capitalist side is the distance between the people who do the production of, you know, in this case, whales, but it could also be um, I mean, why I alluded to the slaughterhouses, it could also be pigs or cows or chickens or some other kind of animal. The people who are really intimately involved in that work, um, who do not have an option of imagining that you can consume something without having to kill it, right? That that's, that's just the sort of fundamental rules of the human engagement with the world if you're eating animals is that you have to kill them first. And a fundamental rule of engagement with Plants is also often that you have to kill them in order to eat them unless you're an orchardist or something. Um, There are some exceptions in the plant world. And I think that that capacity to separate the site of production and the site of consumption allows this sense that we can float above that kind of dirty business of actually being dependent on other kinds of life, which is so present in the hunting ethics that emerge out of Yupik and Chukchi and Inupiaq. Uh, traditions where the sense of dependence on other animals who will choose to die in order for a person to live are so intimate and so kind of carefully articulated um, in those traditions versus one where you can go to a store and buy a piece of meat and have no sense either of the person who killed it or of the animal that was killed. And so those relationships, the life that was lived before the animal died the life conditions of the person who did the killing are completely invisible and therefore can be completely terrible um, without being factored into the cost um, in, a, in a monetary sense or in a moral sense of that act of consumption. And then likewise with slaughterhouses as well, then it's often the person doing the killing who's the person demonized for the result of 
a much bigger system, bigger than themselves. And you include a number of quotes in the book, including one from one of the, I believe, communist Russian whalers who says, if whales could scream out in pain like people, we would all have gone mad. But you write how the fact that he feels that way or what they observe just doesn't matter when you're stuck in this economic system. And I think you likewise see this with um, slaughterhouse workers often who are sometimes demonized by various groups and are really uh, among the abused cogs in this industrial machine. And you tell in the book a story of a group of, in addition to the, the indigenous whalers' approach to the question of what is a whale and how they value it and the American capitalists' approach and the Russian communists, you also describe um, – in environmental activists group with Greenpeace and a, a fellow named Paul Watson. Can you describe that incident and what happened and sort of what your approach, what your take on it is? Yeah. So Greenpeace comes up at the very end of this book, um, in part because Greenpeace was one of the the kind of forcing functions that helped Soviet whaling um, end in the in the 1970s. Um, and it's it's really kind of one of those the the kind of historical story by which Greenpeace becomes part of this whaling story is really lovely in that Greenpeace starts as an anti-nuclear organization that's organized in order to prevent sort wow. of mass human slaughter due to nuclear weapons and then read at some point that uh, Soviet and American intercontinental ballistic missiles were lubricated with the oil that's found in the heads of sperm whales because it has extraordinarily low friction. It's one of the lowest friction oils on the planet, and so it was needed for these really um, kind of technically precise um, applications in, in warheads. And so the kind of initial activists in Greenpeace decide that you know the fates of whales and the fates of people are actually really intertwined because whales are being killed to make these weapons that will kill all of humanity. And so this turns the organization toward uh, preventing industrial whaling. And by the 1970s, when Greenpeace comes together, basically the only countries really practicing uh, mass industrial whaling at sea are the Soviets and to some extent the Japanese. Um, through most of the 20th century, the Norwegians and the British and then some other countries had also been participant and were actually, you know, in terms of numbers of whales killed, killed far more than the Soviet Union did. But the Soviets kind of keep doing it far past when most capitalist countries have dropped out. So Greenpeace ends up organizing against uh, Soviet whaling pretty directly and would go try to run interference and disrupt Soviet whaling activities off the coast of the U.S. in particular. Um, they would get the coordinates from the Department of Defense, uh, which was worried that the Soviets were using their whaling fleets to spy on the U.S. Um, and then these Greenpeace activists in, in acts of real courage uh, would go put themselves between the Soviet industrial harpoons um, and the bodies of whales. So this is kind of where it starts and I think has contributes in some ways to the Soviets deciding that whaling is just not worth the cost anymore amongst other things that are going on. Um, but the the kind of emphasis that Greenpeace has on anti-whaling is not restricted simply to industrial whaling. Um, after uh, the, the Soviets start, of, start to reduce their program and eventually abandon it uh, by the early 80s, Greenpeace really turns to thinking about preventing the deaths of whales by people anywhere at any time. And this includes indigenous whalers in the Arctic. Um, and so the the relationship between Greenpeace and Yupik and Inupiaq whalers is really fraught as a result of this um, because Greenpeace often falling into a very unreflexive uh, kind of colonialist mode of behaving would – say, well, you just need to give up this practice, right? It's barbaric. It's 
um, you know, it's not modern. The, the language they would use was often really loaded. Um, and I think also emerged out of, in kind of an ironic way, a similar level of detachment from the the realities of being a human being, particularly in an Arctic environment where you can't just detach, right? If you don't hunt whales, it's really difficult to find enough food to eat um, unless you're shipping it all in from somewhere else, which comes with enormous environmental consequence also. So to me, you know, Greenpeace on the one hand does this really important work of kind of making clear what industrial whaling looks like, what the costs of it are. They, you know, the, the photographs that emerge out of these altercations with Soviet whaling ships are really critical in the anti-whaling movement and in the kind of uh, drilling down into just the the kind of terrible circumstances in which these whales die. Um, but the lack of ability to separate industrial killing from the kind of indigenous subsistence hunting, which emerges out of the sense that, well, we, we're kind of above consuming at all as human beings, right? We're special in some fundamental way. We don't actually need to depend on animals or ecology in a, in a direct sense. We can kind of coast above it all. Um, and I think it's a similar in, – in some ways it's just the inverse of um, the, the kind of – if industrial killing wants to kill every last whale, then the solution to it is to just not kill any whales at all. And what they're missing in the, in the middle there is the kind of actually complicated business of being a person in the world that has to consume something in order to keep alive, right? We, we need to eat things. Maybe they're whales if you live in the Arctic. They're probably not whales if you don't live in the Arctic. It's, it's actually depends on the ecosystem that you live in um, and it's going to look different in those different places. And that, that kind of level of particularity just sort of fell out of the story um, in the 1980s. And I think it, that impulse to universalize a set of rules regardless of the, the ecosystem of the animals that people would be in relationship with um, comes from a very similar place as both the kind of Soviet desire to make everyone a communist or the American colonial desire to make everybody – you know, a nice American capitalist. It's so ironic, too, that in this practice that you describe as this concealment of death, where the relationship toward the whale, the, the violence gets expressed through the development of missiles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wondering, there's a passage that I was going to ask you to read a little before midway through the book that speaks to the different attitudes toward time that you discuss that the communists had versus the capitalists and then the indigenous peoples. The instinct of capitalism and communism is to ignore loss, to assume that change will bring improvement, to cover over death with expanded consumption. Such modernist visions are telescopic. From the present, each leaps into a distant world, a future place of freedom and plenty. The present must accelerate to reach that far country. Speed is quantified in what can be converted to material value for sale or for the state. What exists in between, the mess of lives lived in shifting concert with tides and winds and the never-fixed mark of ecological complexity, slides from focus. I thought that was a beautiful passage, and I was struck in your analysis by what you call this kind of circular yet teleological conception of time that the capitalist ethic and the communist ethic shared versus what you had been touching on before as the more embedded cyclical way of understanding the human relationship with the environment. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a bit. Yeah. 
So another thing that I didn't think I was writing about when I started this book was time. Um, and it actually took getting multiple drafts in to realize that part of what you know, what was coming out of the descriptions of the landscape that I was engaging in and the understandings of history as told through indigenous histories and the understandings of history as kind of presented in the the capitalist and the socialist kind of trajectories were actually all thinking about time and all doing so in really different ways. And it made me think about the ways in which for both kind of American so American capitalist and Soviet socialist conceptions of time, it's very much in a line. You have a past, you have a present, and you have a future. And the understanding is, is that the future is going to be better than the, the present, right? That that's kind of the hopeful dream. And that's not a bad thing, right? We don't necessarily want to live in a world where we can't imagine better futures. Um, and you can see this, I think, particularly in kind of the early Bolshevik understandings of time, which are so you know, invested in this idea that with revolution, you can radically transform and improve human life in really tangible ways. And those are not, you know, not things to laugh off. It turns out, however, that when you start bringing in aspects of history that are not just humans, um, and even if you really take human beings seriously as kind of physical beings in the world, not just as ideas that float through on the page in your archive, that there's also this kind of cyclical or there's sets of cyclical time that are in operation. And, and I saw this particularly when I was writing about walruses and Arctic foxes. Um, and I, I tended to do the reading about them at the same time because they're both animals that live out on the sea ice. And Arctic foxes have these very kind of distinct cyclical lives in which sometimes there are huge numbers of Arctic foxes. Sometimes there are smaller numbers. They go up and down in these these relatively predictable cycles. And it looks very different than the life cycle of walruses, which are somewhat more consistent over time. So if you're trying to make a living off of foxes and off of walruses, those are two very different projects simply because of the time kind of the time worlds in which these animals exist. And if you think about people, we of course also have time worlds that are quite cyclic because we're born at some point and then we get you know, older and more productive through our lives, and then eventually we get much older and less productive during our lives. And that that is also kind of a cyclic thing that's often challenging for these ideologies that think of time as a telos to deal with, right? Um, and the Soviet Union had some real struggles dealing with things like birth and death and what do you do about the fact that it takes a lot of time to raise a young person and that's very different than factory work. This was a real challenge for the Bolsheviks. Um, and I don't think it's any less of a challenge for capitalist countries, frankly, right? We're not particularly good in this country in thinking about those cyclical pieces of our lives. We want to reduce them to economic terms and then discover that that reduction is actually not good for people. So that kind of um, trying to think about writing history, which is, you know, it emerges out of a real obsession with teleology, right? The the tradition in which I write is in a, you know, without much exaggeration, right, it's inherited pretty directly from Hegel, who was pretty interested in teleology and pretty interested in lines that have, you know, some back and forth in them with the idea of the synthesis and the antithesis or the, sorry, I can never get those right in order. <laughs> um, the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. Um, but really, it's about going forward, right? And, you know, Marx also very much engaged in this project of thinking about a theory of history in order to create um, a new political order, a very, very kind of teleological understanding. 
Um, and many kind of American theorists of capitalism similarly have ideas about the ways in which you know productivity and efficiency are going to produce you know new and better ways of being in which the past is just the past. Um, and we're not really bound to biological time in any really fundamental way. And you know those those kind of obsessions with telos overlook the ways in which natural systems are not just teleological. They are partly teleological. They do change. Um, and the earth has obviously changed in ways that make it radically different now than it was, you know, several million years ago or several billion years ago. But at the same time, there are other kinds of time operating simultaneously. And then when I realized that, I realized that I had to find some way of writing about it where I had all of these different kinds of time kind of floating in and out of the story, um, which proved to be something of a challenge just at a sort of a technical level because um, I think at least I am quite conditioned to write to reading stories that have beginnings, middles, and ends, right? Um, and that the story form itself kind of lends itself to a telos um, and that finding a way within the chapter structure or within a paragraph structure to introduce the idea that some of these things begin and end and some of them continue um, is, I, I found that a, an interesting kind of technical challenge within the writing itself. I found it fascinating that you chose to begin the book with a chapter called On Names, where you juxtapose the names of that these regions, the people of these regions call themselves with the, the names colonists brought up. And then you talk about how you sort of define yourself as a foreigner, as the narrative voice you were coming in there. So as you were on the ground exploring, did you find that there were aspects of the narrative that proved especially difficult to narrativize and make sense of on the page that that felt untranslatable to you as a function of that foreigner position or for some other reason? That's a really good question. I think there are many things. And I think to me, one of the things that I hope this book does is open space for people to be generally interested in this region and therefore go read and encourage the people from Beringia who are writing their own histories um, there's many out there that are very worth reading, and then there are more coming. There's like a whole generation of young scholars and writers uh, who are Yupik and Anupiak, um, whose work is uh, amazing. And um, I think it, for if people want a starting place, the poet Joan Naviat Kane, who wrote the um, the epigraph for this book, um, it just has a you know she has a way of understanding the place because she's from King Island in the Bering Strait that is fundamentally different than mine and it should be read right it should be read widely and by everyone um and i i wanted to emphasize from the beginning that i claim no you know kind of overarching sense that i am from this place or have any particularly special voice about it um and in many ways writing about beringia was a way of wrestling with my own intellectual patrimony right which is coming from this world of obsessive teleology and sense of progress and um, the kind of mechanized agricultural existence that I grew up with. Um, and then because I moved to the Arctic when I was 18, began to see the limits of pretty early in my life and have been kind of wrestling with and trying to to think through what it what these ideas that I grew up with mean when they're actually put into practice. So to me, it's in many ways a reckoning with those ideas um, in some really fundamental ways. And in terms of things that um, I found difficult to express, the, my continued and ongoing frustration really is one with the English language, um, which is that 
there's not a great set of words or word for talking about things that are not people in ways that endow them with sentience and moral capacity and a, a kind of beinghood, right? We end up using these awkward portmanteaus like non-human or other than human or non-human beings, non-human persons, but all of those are about a lack, right? If you put non in front of human, you're already implying that there's something missing, which is not actually the way that I understand, you know, a whale to be. It's not a not person. It's a different kind of person. And English is just really clunky with that concept. For all of the amazing words that we have in this incredibly rich, crazy language, um, that, that concept to me is one that does not have a good noun, um, or set of nouns. And I often just ended up writing around it um, and sort of trying to describe whales in a way that hopefully endowed them with some sense of personhood or walrus or Arctic foxes because the the actual concept isn't really there um, in, in, a, in a clear form. You can use the word soul maybe, but that also comes with such baggage about salvation and it, it you know, it's has a complicated intersection with religious trajectories that, you know, I don't also want to necessarily get into. Um, so I would say that is a place where I was frustrated in this book and anticipate being frustrated for many to come. <laughs> I recently watched a talk where you also talked about your um, eternal disappointment at not being able to talk to the whales directly. <laughs> Likewise. <That's> you, yes. <laughs> um, how is um, – you, you discussed how all of us, of course, except for the, the plants among us, perhaps in some cases, are dependent on – to be alive is to consume something else and to be dependent on the death of something else. And that even um, if you're you know, a vegan in Iowa or something where you grew up, that still through the impact of climate change and, and other industrial processes, you're having an impact on the lives of – creatures like these bowhead whales. And I'm curious, how is Beringia experiencing climate change today? Yeah, this is a question that comes up a lot, I think, because the Arctic in the last couple of years and maybe just in the last 18 months has, I think, really emerged in the the news and kind of public discourse around climate change. And for good reason, because it's a place that's experiencing warming at about twice the rate of temperate places. So it's frequently you know, two degrees Celsius above average warmer, um, and in some places more than that, depending on the year and the season. Um, and the results of this are really quite astounding. Um, there are places that I first visited when I was up in the Arctic 20 years ago, you know, lakes that I would go mush my dog team across that don't exist anymore because the permafrost uh, geology beneath them has changed and they've drained. Um, and now they're filled with willows and, and other kinds of growth. And the growth is more intense because the summers are warmer. Um, and so places that, you know, I just assumed would always be there, right? Because lakes usually are around for longer than a person is, have ceased to be. Um, and that's just sort of one small example of the, the kinds of shifts that are really very visible and present. Um, if you're in communities that are close to the ocean and therefore have a long relationship with the sea ice, um, the profile of the sea ice and when it forms and how deep it is and um, how long it's present has changed really radically. Um, you know, it's changed from a place where the sea ice season is eight or nine months to a place where the dependable sea ice season for some communities is more like three or four because it's thinner, it comes a lot later, and it leaves a lot earlier. And this, of course, has all sorts of impacts on those communities. It has impacts on the animal communities that depend on the sea ice. So... 
I would say in some pla- in some ways, Beringia is a place that you can look to and imagine a set of changes that I think we just as temperate dwelling people started to see happen in 2018 and 2019 um, that you can have really massive, rapid um, kind of changes to landscapes and how they behave and interact with human societies pretty rapidly. Some nations have responded to to climate change and the ecological catastrophes that we're potentially going to face as a species by extending the concept of rights and person to the natural entities that we're trying to protect. And I'm curious, in light of what you were talking about with regard to the differences in language and the kind of concepts that might not be available to us by virtue of, of English and the baggage that it's absorbed, did you encounter styles of thinking about the natural world by the indigenous communities that bear any resemblance to what we might think of in the European tradition as rights? This is a really good question, and I'm I'm in the very, very early days of thinking about this, so I, I actually don't have an answer. And part of the reason that I'm spending my second book project thinking through this is because I find it both intriguing and a thing that I'm somewhat skeptical of, the kind of turn to giving a body of water or a river system the rights of a person so that, you know, you can take someone to court for damaging Lake Erie, for example. Because on the one hand, it seems like perhaps this is a really kind of radical way to break open a system that has been completely anthropocentric for its entire existence in the kind of Western law canon, or at least most of its existence. There are some really interesting cases of, you know, bears being taken to court in France and you know, there there are places in the kind of pre-French revolutionary past and in other um, kind of early Enlightenment and pre-Enlightenment places in Europe where animals did actually participate in the legal system in ways that are kind of interesting um, and I need to do more research about to speak any more on them than that. Um, but I think in the, the kind of 19th and 20th century, the way in which rights have been practiced is as a thing that people possess and can be taken from or granted to depending on your national status, the, the passport you hold, depending on your position in society and those sorts of things. So on the one hand, maybe this is a great place to kind of break out of that and say, no, no, we have to consider a political community that includes non-human or other than human entities as well. On the other hand, to me, there is something very kind of airless and disconnected about the language of rights, um, partly for its its very emphasis on being universal, that a right of a river would be the same everywhere, does not necessarily make intuitive sense to me because rivers are very different and they exist in extremely different ecological contexts, uh, partly because I don't know if giving rights to rivers actually helps or hinders some underlying human justice issues that might play out for communities that themselves do not have sufficient representation and rights under the current legal system. And that would certainly include many indigenous communities, right, that have been colonized off of their land. I don't know if giving river rights actually is a land back program, right? In fact, it could be quite the opposite um, and therefore regressive in a whole set of ways that have to do with human injustices. And I think more generally, I, and this is the thing I'm really curious about and is going to take many, many more years of thinking, is does the language of rights give us a language for thinking about a community that has 
um, entities in it with a whole variety of responsibilities and roles that are not identical to each other because the right of a person and what a person can do in the world is not the same as a whale and what a whale can do in the world, not because one is better or worse than the other, but because they are simply very different. And, you know, is is rights the language to articulate that? Is it a place to open up um, a, a kind of political and social space um, that's more capacious than the kind of current imaginary has it? Or is it something that's actually narrowing and um, not actually able to bring the full complexity and the need for engagement with very particular situations to bear? And I don't know. It's a great question. <laughs> Do you think we can have a global economy that is ethical to multiple species? One thing I think you see with the indigenous groups that you um, profile is how there can be what 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 I saw at least is a is a much more reciprocal and uh, less destructive way of consuming at a local level. But is there a way of doing that at scale that avoids the logic of the slaughterhouse and the distance and the conceit that you describe? Or do you think more like Wendell Berry and uh, others of that of that um, tradition have argued that a local economy is necessary to have the level of affection and respect and and ethical um, interactions that that one would hope for? That's an interesting question because, I mean, on the one hand, it makes a lot of intuitive sense to say, well, if we just keep it local, then, you know, that that will kind of guarantee a certain um, consistency and immediacy in the relationships that we're building with people and with other beings. But I also think that saying that's the only way for it to function is in some ways its own lack of moral imagination, right? It's imagining that somehow people don't have the capacity to make demands that our values um, go beyond the people we know immediately. Mm -hmm. And that would be kind of a sad realization, right? That the only way that we can actually live well with each other is if we have met face to face. Um, So... I'm hesitant to to go all the way there. I think more of the issue is that the economic systems that we operate in do not place any value on relationships that don't extract maximum monetary value and that, you know, a series of societal choices and mostly made by people with enormous amounts of power have set up a system in which we're not allowed to say, I don't want to buy the T-shirt if it was made by people in dire conditions. Um, And those are actually extremely difficult demands to put on the economy as we live in now or to say, I do not want to live a life where I have to use fossil fuels at the level that I do right now, right? Um, Which isn't to say that you might not some of the time, you know, use things that were grown or harvested far away from where you live because people have done that for a very long time, right? People have traded things and moved them around the world, you know, far before we were moving them with airplanes, and I don't think that was inherently destructive. Um, but I do think that what we don't have right now and that what the kind of current w- new wave, the kind of 2019 or late 2018 wave of political um, organization around what in the U.S. is expressed as the Green New Deal, but I think has sort of a, a much more global valence is thinking about systems of consumption and particularly fossil fuel consumption in the case of the Green New Deal that actually embed some of those principles at a, at a broader level um, and say, you know, we're, we, we do not want to have to be complicit in this every time we go to the grocery store. And maybe that means we eat less meat because meat that's raised well and by people who are not 
killing animals in terrible circumstances is more expensive, but maybe that's what this means. Um, so I don't know if that's a completely satisfying answer even for me, but um, I think that the the scale of the issues that are in front of us in 2020 are such that it would we would be remiss to imagine that we shouldn't think beyond our very local spaces. I you know I loved that answer. I thought the call for moral imagination that you embedded in that answer, which is so much a part of the book, and I think what makes the book magnificent too, is incredibly important and and well said. To to close, we like to ask each of our guests to recommend several books or works or or films or um, be it whatever they are that have had a profound influence on how they think about their work and in animals in particular. Do several come to mind that you would recommend? Yes, trying to narrow it to animals in particular. Um, I would say the things that I had close to me when I was writing this book at all times were um, Moby Dick, uh, partly because of the way that Melville writes about animals and partly just because of the way Melville writes. Um, I think he's very skilled at making a world that to most of his readers was completely um, bizarre and foreign, kind of materially immediate. Um, so I would sort of read him for that, but also for just these kind of luxurious descriptions that go on for pages and pages and have no plot point whatsoever about whales. <laughs> um, I think Barry Lopez's writing um, about the Arctic and, and just more generally, I think his desire to think through actually many of the same questions that obsess me, thinking about what an ethical relationship with the world looks like, thinking about the Arctic as an outsider, um, thinking about change over time is very much in his work. Um, and he writes so beautifully about animals um, and I think has a similar desire to endow them with their own life worlds um, that that comes through in his work. So I read him pretty obsessively also. The poet Joan Naviat Kane, who I referenced earlier, the Nupiak poet, her work is incredible. Um, she has a wonderful chapbook called A Few Lines from the Manifest, which is actually mostly prose rather than poetry, and thinking through her relationship with Melville in particular, but kind of with whaling as was introduced to the Bering Strait and also whaling as existed in the Bering Strait in her own lineage um, in just beautiful ways. So that book was next to me while I was writing this all the time. Um, and then there's a book called The Cultural Lives of Whales and Dolphins by Hal Whitehead, um, which in many ways gave me permission. I felt to go in the directions that this book was already taking me in terms of thinking about animals as possessing these rich, sentient, cultural, emotional lives. Um, and I'm immensely grateful to him for giving me the cover that you need if you're an academic who would like to get tenure one day uh, to do so in a, in a history book by really carefully thinking about what a culture is and what animals bear them and how it expresses itself. Um, so his work was really foundational for the whale chapters of this book, but I think more generally in terms of giving me an opening into the, the kind of spaces within animal science and behavioral ecology where I think there's really exciting work going on um, in terms of thinking about um, the, the life worlds of different species. Well, Bathsheba Demuth, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you both so much. 
Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals Program at Yale Law School and the Yale Human Nature Lab. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Write us a review and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Dr. Bathsheba DeMuth and her work. Thanks for listening.